the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. American prosperity is the bedrock of freedom and security all over the world. An obligation to the heritage of liberty and dignity handed down to us by our forefathers. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Very important week, very exciting week. Uh, December 2nd, mere days away, will mark the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine, of course, uh, of Thomas, uh, excuse me, of Thomas, of James Monroe, President James Monroe, his message to Congress on December 2nd, 1823, It's a long message. It covers lots of stuff, um, but it's really, really interesting for not only what's in it, but what uh, became of what's in it. And of course, it was um, largely written, interestingly, by John Quincy Adams, um, who was serving as the secretary of state at the time, later became president. And uh, John Quincy Adams Objected. Monroe was basically saying, hey, let's put a joint statement out with uh, Britain and the statement will cover everybody coming into the hemisphere and Britain and America will say, you know, we're going to be strong. And and uh, John Quincy Adams said, no, 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 don't bring the Brits in. You know, the Brits may want imperial gain, too. And so instead, we had this standalone Monroe Doctrine, which. Well, I'm going to set it up for you, and I hope you'll understand what's going on. It's so important how it became a centerpiece of American foreign policy and remains today. Only briefly, when John Kerry was Secretary of State, he decided to announce that the the Monroe Doctrine was dead. And as soon as he was out of office and Obama was out of office, uh, 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 Donald Trump said, no, no, uh, the, the validity of the Monroe Doctrine continues. But here's the dynamic. In 1823... Monroe is the is the president, and it's actually a time of prosperity and relative peace. It's years after the War of 1812 and all those kinds of things. It's relatively peaceful. And what Monroe is describing, he's describing an America, you know, 40 years into its new American Republic. And we're now getting the growing pains. And there's other nations in Europe that have different systems of government. And they're trying to get into America. The Russians have declared sovereignty over parts of uh, Northeast America. There's uh, uh, ideas that some of the the French and the Portuguese and others will try to come into America. And what Monroe and and Adams came up with was not uh, was was a very specific objection. And he he called these uh, uh, powers in Europe our allies But he said this, the political system of the allied powers is essentially different than from that in America. In other words, 
the American experiment was unique and it was so unique as a system. We, the people that it was, it was foreign. It was different from what existed in Europe in the European powers, the allied powers, they had monarchies, they had systems of, uh, of, of, of governing that were uh, uh, kind of hybrids of democracy. Um, they, they had uh, um, uh, multi-party sort of prime minister type things. They had borders that were shifting regularly. And even though that was true in America by now, by 1823, you've got a certain, a certain solidity, a certain solidity in the American experience and Monroe, the Monroe doctrine is, Hey, we're a young country. We don't want you coming into our hemisphere and messing with us with systems, political systems that are contrary to ours. We cannot compete with systems introduced. And that all the way down through today, the easiest one to me is to talk about the Soviet communists, where we said to the Soviet communists, your system, communism, is not welcome. It can't it cannot coincide. It can't coexist with America. So you can't come into our hemisphere. Now, I was on a talk show a month ago with a. Asian American, I believe the woman who was born in um, somewhere in either China, could have been Taiwan. And she has a kind of she's a libertarian leaning uh, type political uh, philosopher. And she said, well, you can do that for America. But what do you get to say what's happening in the hemisphere? Now, that's just hardball politics, right? We don't want things in our hemisphere because we didn't want to have to deal with the spread that the reality of our on our back door in, in, in our backyard could be the Soviet communists or could be these imperial powers or these simply put these systems that were not able to exist with the American system. We, the people, sovereignty, Republican form of government, a democracy that is a Republican form of democracy, all that stuff. And it's still true today, by the way. You, you know, if you if you turn Mexico over to uh, the communist Chinese and it's on our back door, not good, not good. And so it was kind of buffer. And remember, America really benefited from the fact our geography. We had two oceans that buffered us, buffeted, buffered us from invasion, from problems. Even the Hawaiian, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor was Hawaii, not the mainland. And so down to today, I would say this. The Monroe Doctrine is as valid as ever and understand what my next point is going to be. Because, wait, let me pause. Hear the language. Hear the language. The citizens of the United States cherish sentiments the most friendly in favor of liberty and happiness of their fellow man on that side of the Atlantic in Europe. In the wars of European powers in matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. You see what's going on there that Americans were saying, you know, we're not getting into the fights in Europe amongst yourselves. That's not our role. And you again, you can call this isolationist, but it, it, it sounds smart to me. But then it goes on. They, it, it is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparation for our defense. Only when our rights or interests are menaced or invaded. That's when we get motivated. We're not patrolling the world for other citizens of the world. We're saying when you menace America, Americans, then we're going to get prepared for our defense. 
With the movements in this hemisphere, we are of necessity more immediately connected. Now we're talking about the Western Hemisphere and by causes which must be obvious to all enlightened and impartial observers. So what Monroe's the Monroe Doctrine is saying is in our hemisphere, we're obviously more connected. We we, we got to worry about what's happening in Central America, in, in South America, in Canada. And then this I read it already, but this is a boom. The political system of the allied powers, Europe, is essentially different in this respect from that of America. This difference proceeds from that which exists in their respective governments and to the events of our own, which has been achieved by the loss of so much blood and treasure and matured by the wisdom of the most enlightened citizens and on which under which we have enjoyed unexampled felicity. This whole nation is devoted. In other words, We fought for our system of government, our political system. We died for it. And therefore, we're saying. You just don't come into our backyard with incompatible systems. And here's how it said. We owe it, therefore, to candor and to the amicable relations existing between the United States and those powers in Europe to declare that we should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. Don't come in here with your system that's incompatible. Monroe Doctrine, 200 years ago, still valid today, and watch the pivot. The number one system in the world, there are two systems, I would say. We'll talk about one today, and I'll talk about one later this week. Two systems that are incompatible with America right now, incompatible with our hemisphere, incompatible being in our nation, incompatible being in our hemisphere. The two systems, by the way, one of them is is uh, jihadis, j- jihadism, Islamic jihadism. But the first one I want to point to now is the communist Chinese, the communist Chinese, the Monroe doctrine spells out how clearly we must act to remove from our nation, our hemisphere, the communist Chinese in our midst, period. Start with TikTok. It has to be banned. Move on to uh, the universities in America where they're trying to influence university life. Move on to intellectual property. Move out however you'd like. The communist Chinese system, the Belt and Road Initiative in Latin America and South America, is incompatible, incompatible with our interest. And therefore, it must be expelled Notice that Monroe Doctrine is not, you know, you deserve to die. You deserve to be destroyed. It's it's not compatible here. Get out. Don't come here. But it's not a minor threat. It's not a, you know, the Monroe Doctrine lays out. We, we our people gave up treasure and, and gave up blood and died to get this political system. We're not choosing another system. We're not letting our system be invaded by the communist Chinese regime. Ban TikTok. It's the best example, by the way. Kudos to Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio from uh, Florida, for uh, really leaning on that. Monroe Doctrine. Study it. Read it. It's powerful. It's as accurate today, as valid today, as it was 200 years ago. We'll take a big break and be right back. Ed Martin here, Pro America Report. Back in
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I Last week, I was sent to an essay by a gentleman who is on with us today. Ben Appel is an author and a writer, has a really interesting uh, career, and writes across a, a broad set of topics. I, I think I knew, Ben, that I looked up, I guess, yeah, Columbia. You went to Columbia University, which is a place where there's lots of good writing, lots of uh, writing there, and graduated summa cum laude. I don't even recognize that. I did a lot of Latin, but that's way above my pay grade for undergrad. But welcome, first of all, Ben Appel. How are you, sir? Thank you. Good. How are you? I'm great. So um, actually, I do want to ask you this. I think for over a decade, you worked before you went back to school. And I think you worked as a haircutter, a, a hairstylist over a decade. Then, So you were in your late 20s when you went back to undergrad? I that was actually in my early 30s. Okay. Yeah. So that in and of itself is kind of an interesting perspective because you probably saw a lot of maybe people that weren't necessarily, I don't know, you worked, you'd already been there and had a real job, real job and been building your career in life and decided you want something different. It must've been interesting to see other students who were 18 or 19 uh, going to school. It was, it really was. I mean, it was a great experience, but it was surreal. It was a culture shock for sure. Yeah. All right. So the piece that I was referred to you was in the free press, the FP.com. And it's a piece on Britney Spears and on the uh, legal system and pop culture. And I had not seen anybody write from this perspective. I think you're, I do think you're exactly right. There, the way everything was portrayed was everybody, you know, young and energetic was on Britney Spears side and that her parents were wrong, wrong, wrong. And her dad, you wrote about this first. Well, tell me about your perspective on it, what you wrote in this piece and and maybe why you wrote it. Yeah, I, I wrote it. You know, I've been following Britney's career for, you know, a long time now. I mean, she was again, I'm 30, you know, I'm 40 now. So I was coming up at the same time that she was. And she kind of really went off the deep end back in 2007. And I kind of watched that whole thing happen. And I saw the beginning of the conservatorship, which started in 2008. Her father, you know, kind of took legal control of her finances and her life to really get her back on track. And, you know, that conservatorship lasted for 13 years. And then the portrayal of it was that it was, you know, ultimately just this really abusive uh, arrangement. And it, it wasn't a pretty arrangement. I mean, I know that there I'm sure that there was, you know, who knows what kind of nefarious motivations there were for earning money and so on and so forth. But my perspective was that, you know, it really did seem like um, after reading Britney's memoir that perhaps this conservatorship and her father's intervention actually saved her life and really got her to a better place. You know, it didn't need to go on for that long, probably. And it didn't need to be as 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 heavy and severe as it was, you know, with the amount of control that he did and others had over her life. But it was hard, you know, Brittany in her book depicts it as kind of this 13 year long imprisonment. And she insists that she would have come out the other side if she was just left alone to recover on her own and figure it out. And I, I'm just not so sure because, you know, she was mentally unstable at the time using drugs. Yeah, and, yeah. And man, everything. everything. In, 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 in her in memoir, we're talking to Ben Appel, the uh, writer, the uh, writer um, and uh, his piece, which is over at uh, the FP.com. I'll put it up on social 
social media. I should set this up a little better. Britney Spears has an immensely popular uh, memoir out now called The Woman in Me. It's mm-hmm. selling an amazing number of copies in a period of time where people don't really buy books as much. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of her and it's her side. She got control of her, her life. And so she's telling her side, which means it's one sided again, mm-hmm. not to. And, and the point of Ben Appel's piece, when you read it is, um, you know, the subheading, she blames her family, the legal system, pop culture and paparazzi. But what if she was just sick? Uh, here's the interesting thing. Every family I know has ugly moments. It could just be, you know, when two siblings are rivals and they, one of them hits each other or they treat each other, you know, tease each other. I can picture over the weekend with my four kids, you know, and, and that happens into adulthood. I mean, people become adults, but on the other hand, there is something too at your point uh, about this um, uh, protecting someone who's clearly out of control. So the question is, Ben, and as an observer, now you wrote this piece, how do you draw that line though? Right. I mean, how do you how do you some people just their life just falls apart. They end up homeless and, you, and we don't we don't necessarily put them in mm-hmm. conservatorship. It was because she had so much money or she had someone who objected and wanted to control the money. I don't know. It's a it's an interesting problem. And then here's my final thing. Uh, ben Appel is our guest. Again, I'll stop uh, filibustering. But it does seem like the courts are maybe the least equipped to handle some of the complexity of this. Yeah, I mean, there was she writes in her book about, you know, it, it never really being clear to her that she could have hired her own lawyer the whole time. Um, right. That it was she was kind of always led to believe that she just had to use the, the court appointed lawyer. And, and so she really didn't have a, a big say in it. Typically, conservatorships, as far as I understand it, are reserved for people that are incapacitated. They're people that are, you know, the elderly who um, have dementia, people who have suffered severe uh, physical injuries and are incapable of caring for themselves and caring for, let's say, their estate and their person. And so this was or it did seem to be kind of abnormal. At least that's what I've understood is that this situation was. However, Brittany was, you know, obviously in control of an immense amount of money. And so at the time, there were some really kind of shady characters that came into her life back in 2007, 2008. And and her family was concerned that they were starting to take advantage of her and that she was going to make some really bad decisions. And so they stepped in to make sure to protect her and to protect her assets and to and to make sure that she was on the right track. But it is a tricky and really complicated situation, and it, it does seem like they were kind of really just going by the, the seat of their pants. Yeah. Ben Appel is our guest, uh, the, the writer. And uh, again, I'll post this piece up. He's written on Britney Spears and her experience, which is now cataloged on her side uh, in her book, uh, which is very popular. The Woman and Me brings me all the way around to this point, Ben. And you in, in the piece, you talk about your own uh, health mm-hmm. issues. And so mm-hmm. you're uh, very eloquent about that. That's it's a powerful piece, in part because you weave that in and you and it kind of surprises the reader, I thought. But you talk about rehab and hospitalization. Mm-hmm. One problem right now in America is we don't have we don't often have forced. I mean, we don't have insane asylums to use the the, the ugly term. And even if you're uh, hospitalized, it's very limited because we have sort of in the last 40 years protections uh, for the individual patient. And so some people would say that the homeless problem is a mental health problem and mm-hmm. that we're not doing something about it using the law to pick them up, say, hey, you know, you're, you're going to have to be hospitalized is a problem. I, I, how do you how do you respond to that? I mean, should should Britney Spears have been institutionalized in a different era? She would have been. 
Well, yeah. And I mean, and, and, and also in this era, I mean, in reality, she was institutionalized, you know, not for extended periods of time or permanently, but she did. She was institutionalized by her family involuntarily right. or involuntarily. She was that was kind of what brought about the end of the conservatorship when she was apparently, you know, locked away for a few months because she wasn't doing well. And there were concerns there. For me, you know, personally, just seeing her behavior, you know, the little bit of it that we see on Instagram and so forth and and recalling it back then, I couldn't help but compare it to my own story just because when I was young in my early 20s, I wasn't involved. You know, I had serious drug problems and and what really sent me over the edge was an amphetamine binge that I um, had down in New Orleans. And she writes in her book about how she was taking the amphetamine uh, for typically just uh, prescribed for ADHD Adderall not long after she gave birth. And she admits that she had, you know, severe postpartum depression at the time alone. Postpartum depression is a very, you know, serious condition. And there is something called postpartum psychosis as well. So it can get that serious, but from you know my own experience at the time, obviously I'm a man, so I don't know what postpartum that that right. experience is like. Right. But at the time, I, w- I was suffering from very severe depression and anxiety. And by using those amphetamines, it really did kind of kick me over the edge, and it induced a psychotic episode, a manic episode. Um, and I was I was delusional. I was I needed care. I needed mm. my family to step in, and I needed to go into the hospital and get help. So when I saw when she writes about all of that and I and that was the first time that she that I had seen her admit that she had used drugs like that I knew that this was a really serious thing and so her erratic behavior and the way that she was speaking and a lot of things just weren't really making sense and I do write in the piece like it's really impossible to reason with someone like that you know you because they're kind of operating on this different level of plane of reality and they're thinking things are true when they're not and Mm -hmm. and vice versa and so sometimes it really does require intervention and to to get them time away to get better to heal well it's a very interesting piece ben appel i'm sorry i'm out of time though it happens to me every time you got i just got your rolling at ben appel uh a p p e l uh, at ben appel put up on social media on social on uh, x and he writes uh all over the place also thank you we'll have you back again we gotta take a break though everybody be right back ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here to Pro America Report. Hey, I'm setting up this interview, about to interview Jim Robbins, a really super guy. Uh, Jim Robbins is a, a, a very talented national security expert and a great writer. Um, but I, before I did that, I wanted to take a, record a real brief message uh, for my friend, uh, John Lenzowski, who runs the Institute of World Politics, um, which is where uh, uh, Robbins, uh, uh, Jim Robbins is the dean. Uh, extraordinary guy, uh, John is. Extraordinary vision uh, for what uh, IWP has done over the years. Um, you should go to IWP.edu. But I just also wanted to give a, um, a shout out, Institute of World 
world politics is extraordinary. Uh, John is a wonderful guy. John Lenzowski, very close over the years and uh, lined up in terms of uh, solid America first vision of being really competent and starting an institution. And just encourage you all to check it out. And also best to John and his wife, who has been battling some health issues. We wish them well. Real American treasure. Sit back. Enjoy this interview with Jim Robbins uh, about the Institute of World Politics. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Dr. James S. Robbins. He's the academic dean over at the Institute of World Politics. Also uh, has been a longtime writer uh, with the Wall Street Journal. He writes at the Wall Street Journal, also USA Today. Uh, and really has uh, for decades now been a writer, especially in the national security space. Uh, he does he is his Dr. James, but he goes by Jim. Jim Robbins, welcome back, Jim. How are you? Oh, hey, Ed, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Your piece over in the Wall Street Journal is one I flagged. It ran about a week ago now, but it still works and it's still important. A uh, headline was, My School Doesn't Tolerate Anti-Semitism, and we're happy to work with donors who are tired of giving to colleges that do. Jim, give a little bit, we were talking off the air, give a little bit of a sketch of the history of where you are and what it's about, the mission, and then why in this context you're able to pull that off. I mean, some places would like to be more uh, I think, well, m- maybe they would like to be better at uh, who they accept money from, but they got to have money. I mean, they've, they've created these uh, sort of uh, uh, monstrosities. So walk us through that, please. What, what I ask, please. Oh, sure. Well, the Institute of World Politics is an accredited graduate school of national security, uh, foreign affairs and intelligence. Uh, we've been here for 33 years in Washington, D.C., and you know, our students are half of them are uh, career professionals who are here for uh, you know to get masters or or uh, doctorates to further their uh, careers in national security, and then the other half are people just coming into the field. And uh, I think that the reason why we're able to be a little more independent. Well, one, we don't take government money, which is uh, you know right. a good thing. We don't take foreign money. I mean, we're completely independent. And we're very much focused on our mission, which is American national security, while also upholding the values of Western civilization and the American founding tradition. So I mean, we're very focused to what we do, and uh, we stay attached to that. And our, our goal is to produce people who will then go and, and serve in either government or the private sector, but in defense of the country. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jim Robbins again. Uh, he's a dean over at the Institute for World Politics. Um in the context of how polarized th- we're told things are, you know, people say they tell us everything is polarized. It's only I think they only say that when you, they when they actually have dissenting voices on something. But, but I, I digress. Um, do you get yourself? Is it a problem to get pigeonholed? I, I know the answer because I was, you know, I mentioned the founder uh, uh, was telling me about how we just train people really well. The rest of it doesn't matter. You know, that'll come and go. But but it's hard to do in the world we're in. Again, you're an experienced uh, communicator, whether at USA Today, Wall Street Journal, wherever, and people will make things into something fast. Are you able to escape that pretty well? Well, it is hard to do because everybody wants to fit you into a box. Right. But at IWP, we really focus on policy. We focus on strategy. We try to stay out of the politics of things because, you know, in the old days, 
the tradition was for public servants to be nonpartisan. Imagine that, Ed. Imagine those good old days. <laughs> yeah. when, you know, everything out of the mouth of a public servant wasn't deconstructed for its politics. But I mean, we really adhere to that because we want to train people to be strategists who will work in the national interests of our country and not be swayed by sort of the momentary, you know, whatever the latest thing is. Do you um, when you see the other schools going through this? I mean, it's really um, there's no other. There's no really better word. It's really nasty um, how the students act. It's um, and and the administrators seem to be sort of stuck. Again, you've been around uh, academia and been you know trained at other institutions and all. Is there a path forward for those other schools, or are they really just trapped in a in a in a situation they created? Oh, they're definitely trapped. I mean, you could see this coming because it, with the uh, critical theory that that uh, many of these schools are in thrall of, you have to divide up people into the oppressors and the oppressed, right? And that's that's how you judge who's virtuous and who isn't. And on any list like that, unfortunately, Jewish Americans are coming out as the oppressors, right? That that's they land on that side. They're the part of the, you know. Uh, the white class of oppressors, or in the case of Israel, they're the Zionist colonizers, or, you know, however you want to express it. And this has been going on for years. You've heard this on campuses. It's just that the events of October 7th with uh, Hamas and their, their horrible terrorist attacks in Israel brought this out because people naturally wanted to protest and object and, and make strong statements against Hamas terrorism. But all of a sudden, college administrators are kind of hedging their bets. You know, it's like, well, you know, the resistance or Palestine or whatever they wanted to say or or making it like a both sides thing, which is ridiculous. And, you know, anyone could have predicted this given the climate on campuses in the last 20 years. Uh, Dr. James Robbins. Jim Robbins is our guest. Uh, He's the dean of academics at the Institute for World Politics. Uh, Meant to say earlier on IWP.edu to find out more about what's happening there. Uh, Jim, again, your observation in the piece in The Wall Street Journal, uh, there are schools with values based undergraduate programs. You mentioned High Point, Belmont Abbey, Grove City, Elon, Hillsdale, Liberty University that don't tolerate this outrageous behavior. Uh, Jim, is that a growth industry? I mean, you you listing those. When I read your piece, I thought, huh, there's more than just two or three. It's not just Hillsdale anymore. Um, it, it, it feels like there's more schools or more institutions sort of stepping into the space saying we'll we'll treat. Are you seeing that? And is it is it happening at the graduate level, too? Well, it's definitely at the undergraduate level. I think it is a growth industry. And in some of the schools, the online schools where it's not as much of an issue, uh, I think I think that people are starting to catch on. And another part of this is market forces, because when you look at the Uh. public opinion regarding the value of an undergraduate degree and people saying, why am I sending kids to be indoctrinated? What good does this do? Uh, There's and not to mention the demographic shift. There is a decline in enrollment. So schools can no longer count on having this captive audience that's forever going to be, you know, paying their bills. They have to start thinking seriously about whether they want to start attracting people through quality programs as opposed to this indoctrination they've been giving um it's 
So uh, uh, back to the um, the market is the is are, are you seeing it grow in graduate level too? I mean, graduate graduate schools, depending on the topic, can be the, some of the worst places or some of the best. If you're doing a, a physics degree at, at UVA in Charlottesville, there's not a lot of politics to that. It's really just top notch physics. But uh, in the arts, it's pretty bad. Well, you'd be surprised. I saw a statement from the dean of a of a engineering school that I won't mention the school, but who said that uh, academic rigor is part of the like white patriarchy. Oh, <laughs> now, this is an engineering school. So you want them building your bridge? I mean, they don't believe in academic rigor. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, Jim Robbins, uh, thank you for uh, being out there writing on these uh, topics. Uh, very interesting. And again, the Institute of World Politics. Remind our listeners who goes there to study. One of the things I, I know because I visited six months ago, there's a wide range of students that are there. Tell, tell our, our listeners about that a little bit, please. Oh, well, all kinds of students show up here, but generally speaking, they're people who want to get involved in national security in some way, whether it's the intelligence community or in defense or diplomacy. Some people go in the private sector, uh, you know, working it that way. But they're all very motivated people here and all have a, a belief in the American mission and support for our country. Yeah. All right. Dr. Jim Robbins, thank you very much. Again, the piece is over at the uh, Wall Street Journal. I will post it there. My school doesn't tolerate anti-Semitism, and we're happy to work with donors who are tired of giving to colleges that do. Again, the Institute of World Politics. Thanks very much, Jim. Thank you, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back, and I'll put all that up on social media, including a link to his piece in the Wall Street Journal. I'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. If you mess with our school's curriculum, there will be lots of impacts. For example, there's not enough time for students to get to calculus in high school if they're being held back and forced to take Algebra 1 as freshmen. But that is exactly what American diversity, equity, and inclusion gurus want to do to our kids. In Japan and other countries that are far ahead of us in math education, students learn algebra in middle school. Recently, our own students' math skills have fallen another half year below where they were expected to be, according to a recent report. Some blame this on the COVID pandemic, during which many schools shut down for far too long. But a bigger cause is liberals prioritizing equity over education in the public schools. The math achievement in our country has dropped to its lowest level in two decades among fourth grade and eighth grade students. Many preteens cannot even do basic subtraction with two digit numbers. For decades, public colleges were forced to offer remedial math programs to help students catch up to where they should be. But recent studies show that approach to be a failure. Like reading, math is best learned at an early age. And it becomes harder and harder to learn basic skills as a student gets older. Electing conservative school board members can help with this issue, but not so much in deep blue states like California, where the Democrat-controlled legislature imposes its left-wing ideology statewide. California just saw the passage of Assembly Bill 1078, which penalizes local school boards if they fail to teach the state-mandated diversity, equity, and inclusion curriculum. In truth, for our students to have maximum opportunities to excel in their schools, we need to have the best of both worlds. 
It takes both a strong family-focused school board as well as a strong family-focused legislature working in tandem to ensure that our schools stay on track. Our resources are limited, and most limited of all is our time. So every hour spent on worthless diversity training is another hour our children will never have to learn vital skills in math, science, and reading. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. The liberal agenda is corrupting classrooms in colleges and schools across the country. If you're a parent, teacher, or administrator who really cares about our children, we promise to keep you informed at phyllisschlafly.com. And let us hear from you at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Hey, I got to do a Peggy Noonan watch, a Peggy Noonan watch, the the writer for the Wall Street Journal. She writes a weekly column called Declarations. She's done so for decades. Um, she is an accomplished writer. Um, she served as a speech writer in the Reagan administration, and uh, and she's written speeches and she's written columns for, I don't know, got to be 30 years uh, the compilation of her uh, essays, her columns is really good because it's kind of a march through history. You sort of see what's going on. And I used to really agree with her a lot. And then she got Trump derangement syndrome. And I still read her because she's influential and she's a good writer, uh, but she's completely out of control and she's out of control. And what she's mostly identifying now is what she calls out of control populism, the populism of the people. We, the people, are out of control. What's ironic is that she came into the Reagan White House on what was called the Reagan Revolution. And everybody back then said the Reagan Revolution was people that were out of control. They were populist. They were they were bucking the establishment. They were not paying attention to the norms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, one of the I think one of the essays she wrote, which is really funny and, and interesting, she said, um, we came for the Reagan, we came for the Reagan revolution and we never left, meaning all these revolutionaries came to Washington, D.C. They were supposed to come in and change the government and get it back after they, you know all this stuff. And we're going to you know, change everything up and we're going to limit things and then cut government. Then we're going to leave. Or, you know, we're going to do that and go back to our families, you know, federalism, back to the, the states and all. And they all came and they built huge think tanks and training centers and had uh, lobby shops and became influential. And she said, we came for the Reagan Revolution and we never left. Well, I would submit to you that the MAGA revolution, which she decries and describes as so problematic and, and goes into, is really the Reagan Revolution. It's a it's a, re, a redo of the Reagan revolution where people feel like they were left behind. They were left back in their home states in the Rust Belt and in the far southwest and places. And they watch the economy go down, down, down. Jobs go down, down, down. And they say to themselves, you know what? I want something different and I'm fed up about it. And I'm not really interested in the norms you tell me I'm supposed to moder- uh, to uh, to abide by. I'm not really interested in the in the guidelines that you tell me about how we're supposed to do things. No, I'm kind of fed up, and I'm kind of interested in somebody breaking the system a little bit and changing the dynamic a little bit. And I'll take that. 
And that's what I think you're seeing. And so watching the um, the uh, Peggy Noonan set wring their hands over the the uh, populism of P of the of the grassroots is amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch. And here's the thing. By the time it's done, you end up with uh, by the time this movement gets to Election Day, you end up with a really interesting coalition. Because notwithstanding the never Trumpers who are kind of, uh, you know, consider themselves enlightened and therefore can't vote for Trump, normal Republicans will vote for a Trump presidency. They'll vote for a Trump campaign. And social conservatives now believe in Trump. They trust him. And the MAGA people that want someone to stand up to the broken system, they're in there fired up. That's the whole MAGA. That's the base. And... There's a whole bunch of other people who are looking at the system and they're saying the system is rigged. The system is really rigged against we, the people. And I, I, you know, I want something different and I want something dramatically different. And I'm not saying Donald Trump will win uh, all, you know, a a majority of African-American males, but he might win 30%. Even if he wins 20%, it's a huge number. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is going to win uh, a majority of uh, uh, first generation Hispanic Americans, but he might win 30 percent. I'm not saying Donald Trump is going to win a a majority of the Indian American community, which tends tends to go Democrat. But they they are um, uh, uh, more inclined to go towards good government, even though they lean a little. But he might win 30 or 40 percent. He might win 50 percent. A lot of Indian Americans are people that want to carry on. They want to educate their kids. They want to go to good schools. They want to build businesses. They don't want government confiscating their, uh, their, their salaries for taxes. They don't want uh, a big government growing into all this woke stuff. So I think the coalition of populist voters is getting pretty big. It's getting pretty big. Uh, it's the numbers are growing. And you have to wonder, again, we go through the next 11 months, 10 months, it gets really, really interesting fast on who who is who is left out of at least taking a second look. OK, I know one group, you know, liberal white women are not going to take a second look at uh, Donald Trump. Probably not. He's probably not going to get 20 percent. And maybe African-American women. Although I got to say, older African-American women, when you look at some of the data and you, you anecdotal. They're kind of fed up too. They're saying, you know, you haven't the, 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 for all the promises people have made. It's not really working out for our community. So that coalition is going to be something, and I, I wonder how the uh, Peggy Noonans are going to handle the growing tide. I mean, it's looking like a, a groundswell in favor of the populist positions, as she calls them. the populist positions. Just look like popular positions. Positions that more people want than don't. I think that's where it's headed. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, as always, to uh, uh, Ryan Height, our producer, Mason Mohan, associate producer. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for uh, the email. You'll get a, a notification when I'm writing there. And uh, visit PhyllisSchlafly.com, PhyllisSchlafly.com, to see all of the great work we're doing there. We will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.